Thank you, Sonia, Dr. Jones. It's a really a pleasure to be here, and I do appreciate the uh, invitation. Um, as uh, Dr. Jones said, I moved to Columbia this past January. I spent a few years in Kansas before that, so it's a little more exciting here than there. But uh, I'm originally from uh, Canada, in uh, near Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So um, that might explain the funny accent. But uh, really loving it here so far, especially the weather, obviously. and. Uh, um, really enjoying, I, so I'm in uh, the Department of Health Promotion, Education and Behavior, and um, so I, I teach classes on, uh, I teach a graduate class on uh, measurement to PhD students, but I also teach a class on this topic um, as HPEB 511 this coming spring, so uh, I think it's getting full, if not full already, but um, if it's something you're interested in, uh, you might look it up in, uh, in future, but I'm really enjoying uh, being here in the Arnold School so far, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you guys about some of my research today. So I'm going to um, frame this around an environmental justice perspective. So I've titled this Equal Access for All, and I'm going to share with you some of my research, um, both back in Kansas, in Kansas City, and then some things that we're getting started here in uh, um, South Carolina that relates to this topic. So quickly, we'll, we'll go over... Um, you know, kind of what is environmental justice. We'll talk about the built environment and how it influences health behaviors, including physical activity. Um, then I'll walk you through a few studies really quickly. We're not going to go into any of these in any depth, really, but um, that where we looked at a variety of things around parks and physical activity, um, and a lot of it from an environmental justice perspective. Because as you'll see in a second, a lot of my research is around parks and how they influence physical activity and health for different populations. And then I'll share with you the Healthy Young People Empowerment Project, the HYPE Project, which is um, getting up and going here in South Carolina that helps to get youth involved in becoming advocates and understanding how policies and environments influence health behaviors um, in their communities. All right, so a lot of you have probably seen this before, especially if you're in HPEB or other health promotion type departments, a social ecological model, right? Um, we say that you know, a number of different levels of influence have an impact on your health behaviors, whether it's tobacco use, alcohol use, nutrition, physical activity, and so on. Obviously, where I operate, where my research falls, is a little bit more towards the outer rings here, these community and policy levels. Certainly not to say that um, these parts aren't important, because I think uh, looking at influences across the entire individual is, is really important. Um, but I kind of frame my work a little bit out here. So one of the quotes that I really like is that um, it's by Larry Frank, who does a lot of research in um, built environment and urban planning and how it impacts health and travel patterns, things like that. It's that most of the communities where Americans live, and I'd say this is true for Canada as well, where I'm originally from, are important contributors to current public health problems. But I like to look at the second half, more positive spin on this, that simultaneously they can also be the uh, a source of solutions to those problems. So I think we've done a pretty... Um, bad job, so to speak, of designing our communities over the last 30, 40 years, the newer ones at least, um, since the World War, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but uh, we can also you know, start to change the way our communities are developed to rectify some of these issues like obesity. So when we target the built environment, there's a number of reasons why we might attack it from that higher level perspective. One, that large numbers of people are affected, right? So if I build a new park in your neighborhood, say it's going to affect all of the people perhaps who live in that neighborhood. Um, if we change the cafeteria food within a school, it's going to impact all of the, the youth that are there. That's in contrast to other programs that might have a more intense focus on individuals who are, say, part of a program of, say, 20 or 30 people who might be receiving a more intense intervention, where this was the built environment. If you change something there, it might uh, affect a larger number of people, right? So 
um, relatively permanent effects, right? If I build a sidewalk in a community, it's going to be there for 10, 20, 30, 100 years or so. Um, and also, another important issue is that the built environment research shows impacts active living behaviors, <clears throat> not just exercise-related physical activity. So when I say active living behaviors, it's things like you walking to campus here, or somebody commuting by bike to work, or even taking public transit is useful, um, as opposed to just exercise-related behaviors, like you getting up and going to the gym in the morning to jog on the treadmill. All that stuff's important as well, but if we can try to convince people to build physical activity behaviors into their daily life routines, we might have some success helping people meet physical activity recommendations of 30 minutes a day or so via those methods. And so the built environment has a strong impact on that kind of stuff especially. Um, and then, you know, because of all of these reasons, we're seeing endorsements from a number of different high-level bodies um, about how we need to change our way our communities are developed to promote physical activity, nutrition, and reduce obesity. So when we look at active living or physical activity behaviors, there's a number of different influences in an environment that it can affect uh, how active we are. I won't go into all of these in detail, but sometimes urban planners talk about the three Ds, density, diversity, and design. So having a mix of housing, not just uh, houses on large lots all spread out so it's such that you can't really get anywhere quickly. You know, a lot of us probably live in these neighborhoods and they're very nice, but trying to have a mix of housing opportunities so that um, we can sort of promote more density like, like you kind of see downtown here, right? You've got some houses, you've got some apartments, um, some you know, multi-level uh, things that are two or three uh, families living together, that kind of thing. What that does is it promotes a lot more people living in close proximity to each other, such that a bar or a restaurant or a hair salon or something would want to locate in that location, and that makes it creates a place where people can walk to, rather than having living in a neighborhood where there's just houses, and then way over here, three miles away, there's just businesses all clumped together. It would be better if we had a little bit more diversity of land uses, which is the second point. And then design is how we design um, our streets and our transportation systems. So if you live in a more grid-like street pattern, like you see more in downtown areas or older areas of cities, that helps people get along a lot, get around um, a lot easier, helps you to not get lost as much, and people want to walk more in those types of environments, research shows. And then you've got other tra uh, infra transportation infrastructure things like sidewalks are obviously important, public transit, even people who take public transit accumulate more physical activity during the day than people who don't. So um, even if that's not a directly active form of getting around, even just walking to it, walking out, getting off the bus, walking home, all that is, is important as well. It also keeps cars off the road and that kind of stuff. Um, neighborhood connectedness and uh, aesthetics, so you know, these are things like making sure that properties and businesses and sidewalks and things like that are well maintained, that there's trees and greenery, that kind of stuff helps promote an environment, so that's the aesthetics aspect, obviously. Neighborhood connectedness is, um, you know, do we have social capital within our communities? Do you know your neighbors? Um, all of that creates uh, safe environments and kind of uh, role models, people who are out walking. It just creates an environment where people feel more comfortable getting out, being active in their community. And obviously, that contributes to safety from crime. Safety from traffic is important as well. And then lastly, parks, trails, and recreation facilities. So that's a lot where my research lies and what I'm largely going to be talking about today. But obviously, there's a number of different influences. A lot of these things interact with each other, of course. You know, If I have more parks in my neighborhood, it might create a more aesthetically pleasing neighborhood. Or if I have more safety, um, things that have, you know, are trying to reduce traffic or help people feel safe in their neighborhoods, that's going to increase how much they're out getting to know their neighborhoods and that neighborhood connectedness aspect of it. So it all works together, and these are the kind of communities I think we need to be uh, building or retrofitting. 
So parks, we won't go through all of this, but parks are important for a number of different reasons in communities. They provide economic benefits, social benefits, and so on. But one of the big things they can do for us, obviously, is um, health benefits through physical activity or even mental health, people getting out and uh, you know, just relaxing in their park, even if it's for a more sedentary activity like reading and just socializing, that kind of stuff. Um, so we won't go through all of this, but uh, you know, the parks are really being recognized as an important component of these walkable, um, active communities. So really quickly, people are starting to do a lot more research on this, including myself and others here at USC. Um, research shows that not surprisingly, living closer to park space um, seems to be equate to people being more active. Um, that research is also being done to actually go out into parks to see how active are people when they are there, what proportions of people are active. And we find that it really widely varies from 40% to 90% all across several recent studies. And a lot of that I think has to do with the fact that parks are all different, right? They can vary with respect to the features that are there, like playgrounds and trails, the supporting amenities that are there, like restrooms and lighting and benches and drinking fountains, that kind of stuff. Um, but also the quality and the upkeep of everything that's there and even just the aesthetic appeal, trees and shade and uh, nice landscaping. And also getting to the park, you know, how easily can you access it? Are there crosswalks where you can get to the park easily without having to risk your life, you know, getting across the road, especially important for maybe older adults or, or kids. So all of those things are important and it tends to weigh on the fact that uh, um, we see different, tends to bear on the fact that we see different levels of physical activity within parks. And then kind of speaking to today's topic, and I'll talk tell you about some studies we've done in this area. Um, park research finds that park availability, park features, park quality is not always equally distributed across communities by income or by uh, racial composition, things like that. So that's uh, an important concern that we need to think about, rectify. So the kind of the framing for this entire talk is environmental justice. And environmental justice comprises two points. One, we'll skip to the second one here, yes, that everyone enjoys the same degree of protection from environmental health hazards. So environmental justice really picked up steam when we looked at things like garbage dumps, you know, that everybody shouldn't have to live next to a garbage dump or that they should be equally distributed so certain groups from minority backgrounds or low-income backgrounds aren't disproportionately affected by these things. But also that the important things that contribute to your health, like parks, like um, sidewalks, things like that are equally distributed throughout our communities as well. So that's often the aspect that people focus more on when they talk about environmental justice, equitable distribution of things. But we also want to think about when we are creating situations where things are equitable, has the decision-making processes and the involvement of people been relative, relatively equal as well? So that's the second, first point there, fair treatment and meaningful involvement of people within that process. So it's kind of the forgotten point sometimes. So the reason some of this is important, I just want to share with you really quickly some of the research we've done in the past, is because the environment affects different groups in different ways we're really starting to learn over the last five or ten years or so. So really quickly, this is one study that we did, um, this was back in Canada actually, um, where we tried, to, we asked people about their perceptions of their neighborhood and we basically broke people down into high or low perceptions. So I do, do I think my neighborhood is good for safety, for walking and cycling facilities, for street connectivity, for that land use mix stuff, 
aesthetic appeal, all that kind of stuff. And we also asked them about their physical activity level. How much do you get out and be active in your neighborhood? Zero minutes, one to 59, or 60 plus. So they gave us the actual number and we broke them down into these groups. And what you can see here is there's not that much difference in neighborhood perceptions between the blue and the green groups. If you look at all the bars, they're relatively similar. So the people who are out being active, you know, it doesn't necessarily make a difference whether they um, have high neighborhood perceptions or not. They have pretty much pretty similar perceptions on all of these variables. But you see drastic differences between the people who do nothing and the people who do something with respect to the red bars and versus the blue and the green together. So what it starts to suggest is that, you know, the neighborhood perhaps acts as a trigger to get people to at least do something, get out, getting out there, being active. There may be other variables that help to contribute to being more active, but this group of people who are sitting on the couch most of the time is a large percentage of our population, and we need to try to move them to that point. Yes, ma'am. This was, yes, uh, no, sorry, this was weekly, actually, and this was just in your neighborhood, so because we wanted to tie the neighborhood perceptions to, so these amounts may seem a little bit low, obviously, but um, this was just physical activity done in your neighborhood, so good question, though, yeah. Okay, so important conceptually and maybe practically as well that we build better neighborhoods, get people off the couch. Likewise, we wanted to see, so we, this was kind of a follow-up to that study, we wanted to see, well, um, does the neighborhood affect people with different levels of self-efficacy? So we broke people down into people who had high walkability perceptions and high self-efficacy, meaning I'm very confident that I can go out and be active no matter the circumstances, or people who are low self-efficacy, high walkability, low and low, high and low. So we'll revisit these on the next slide here. So this was for the full sample of folks, what we found was that, well, it's relatively, you know, the same. As you move from a low walkable group to a high walkable group, the people with low self-efficacy, not surprisingly, they should, that's, this one should be on the bottom here, but the green line, um, you know, they got better, as did the people who had high self-efficacy. They got better as well, low to high walkable. But when we break this down by group, so in this case it's by gender, if you look at the males on the left, it's the relatively the same pattern. But if you look at the females over here, as the females with low self-efficacy, the blue line on the bottom here, go from low walkable to high walkable, the gap really starts to narrow at the top dots there in terms of how much physical activity they're doing. So it starts to su suggest that um, for certain groups, in this case women who are uh, on average less active, that the having built environments in walkable communities may be more important for certain groups. And we see the same pattern here. Healthy weight people still goes up and more have you have a walkable neighborhood, so that's good. But over here, people with low self-efficacy who are overweight or obese living in a better neighborhood seems to have a more significant impact on their physical activity patterns. So we look at, we want to look at all this kind of from the environmental justice perspective that you know, things aren't equal all the time, both in behaviors and in opportunities, and we need to recognize that. So I want to tell you really quickly about some of the studies that we have done back in uh, Kansas City. Um, the first one was we took four parks. We just simply wanted to get a picture of what was happening in these four large parks in a central area of Kansas City. So one was Bud Park, very Hispanic population around there. And what we did is we broke each park down into these target areas. So number 16 here, I believe, was a swimming pool. 14 was a picnic shelter. This is a tennis court. Some of them are just open spaces, things like that. So we wanted to see in different areas, are people more or less active kind of thing? And I'll come back to that in a second. So there's Loose Park, very beautiful central urban park. 
um, Penn Valley, bigger one, and Roanoke Park. Okay. And so what we did was two main methods of data collection. We went out and observed the behaviors that were happening there. You know, how active are people and how active are people in the different settings of the park? But we, and we also, so we use this recording forum. I won't go into it all, but if you're interested, I'd be happy to tell you about it a little bit more later. But we recorded their gender, um, their approximate age group, their race, and how active they were, sedentary, moderate, or vigorous, when we observed them um, in the park. And then we also gave them a big visitor survey. Well, it was four pages. It was big for an on-the-spot survey. And so we asked them a number of questions about what kinds of things are important for you in the park, how active are you when you're here, what's your motivations for being here, things like that. Okay. So some of our sample research questions are listed here. And I'm just going to give you a taste of a couple of the things that, that we did. So in one case, we broke the um, groups down. This was the observational data. We broke them down by male and white, male and non-white, female and white, or female and non-white. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough um, non-white individuals observed to try to break down groups into black, Hispanic, Asian, or other types of groups. So unfortunately, we had to lump them all together. We'd like to do this in some more diverse communities or more diverse parks in the future where we can try to tease out some of those uh, um, racial minority differences as well. Okay. But what we found was first, amongst children, yes, not surprisingly, male white users had the highest levels of um, being physically active in the park. Again, um, well, this was for teens, actually this was the anomaly. For teens, female non-white users were actually the highest levels, whereas the male and female white were slightly lower, which was interesting for teens. And teens especially are not very active and often don't like parks, so it was interesting to see why there was differences for the, the teenage group here. Um, not as strong of differences for the adults in this case, but again, still the male, female, white were significantly higher than the female, non-white. And then big differences when you get to older adults as well. So it started to show the general pattern, except for the teens, was that the white groups, male, white, and female, white, were more active in parks. So I think that's unfortunate and it's something that we need to, to look at a little bit more. Um, this was a paper that one of my um, grad students, Gina Baseni, um, just wrote up. And so we were looking at here in youth, where does, was it due to perhaps specific areas of the park? So are kids more active in certain areas than in others? And maybe that would help us to examine some of these things. So what we found here was that, not surprisingly, playgrounds was one of the most active places. So the higher, there was higher mean energy expenditure um, in playgrounds, which kind of is not a surprise, right? But it's still important evidence to try to document some of these things. Another thing that we did was we can look at adults as well. And um, again, we'll just skip over the descriptive slide here. But one of the things that we found was that across all areas, males were not more likely to be active than females. But if we move here, um, whites were more likely to be active than non-whites across all areas. So again, you're seeing that pattern of um, people from Caucasian backgrounds being a little bit more active. But, um, in, and we also looked at by spaces here. So within open spaces, males more active than females. And some research supports the fact that uh, females often like more structured environments, either with programming happening, and this is specifically in parks, or maybe because of safety or social reasons, things like that. So um, this wasn't so much of a, a surprise, but still interesting. Um, on trails, whites more act likely to be active than uh, non-white background, people from non-white backgrounds. Um, but in picnic shelters or around picnic shelters, when we were observing those areas, non-whites more active than 
um, whites, and research actually su supports the fact that people, especially from Hispanic backgrounds, really like to have social gatherings, maybe with some activity involved around those picnic shelters. Um, so that may be partly what's happening here. And some of this is explained by the fact that we also did that visitor survey, that four-page survey, and one of the things we asked people was um, rank the importance of various attributes in um, you being physically active at a park. And so just some of the 20 or so things that we asked about are listed here. And if you look at these, the trend here is that um, people from minority backgrounds, black and Hispanic, have higher mean values. So this was like a one to five scale, I believe, yes. Um, how important are these things were higher than people from white backgrounds. So there was several things like cleanliness, parking, restrooms, lighting, having those playgrounds, having those picnic areas that really spoke to those folks in terms of encouraging and facilitating their physical activity. So we see some disparate patterns when it comes to park-based physical activity by race or by gender, and we also see some preferences for certain types of facilities. So this is a type of information we need to kind of pay attention to to try to level the playing field, so to speak, when it comes to parks and uh, physical activity. So because we have seen some of these differences by park area and by park quality and things like that, we thought it was important to, go, to have a mechanism by which we could go out and evaluate parks um, to try to audit them and see, you know, what's in this park? Is it a good park for physical activity? Does it have the types of resources and the types of quality and supporting amenities that people need in order to be active? So we did this project called Development of a Community Stakeholder Park Audit Tool. And this was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, basically, the premise behind it was that we need to get a broader cross-section of people interested in the built environment, in this case, specifically parks, but we could have done this with any type of environment. But we need to get larger, a larger group of people interested in trying to change our communities, not just researchers, not just people who work at the public uh, health department or at the planning department. So what we wanted to do was bring together um, stakeholders from across the community to try to develop and use a tool and examine um, not only the tool, but also the process that they went through and how that all affected them and everything. So I'll tell you more about all that here. So the, the premise behind this was there were some audit tools that had been developed to go out and evaluate a park, but none of them had been really developed much or especially tested or used with stakeholders in the community. They'd all been mostly done by researchers, which is useful, but we want to get more people involved in this whole process, including youth, as I will talk about later. So there were seven stages to the project. Um, we went out and looked at these existing instruments. We had three workshops, which I'll tell you more about in a second, which is stages two, four, and six. We also developed the tool, went out and tested the tool, and then we had some uh, dissemination activities. We we're trying to get it out there, and it is being used by groups now. So we had 34 representatives from all across the community. Some of these people were, were people who work for the city in public health and planning, um, a couple city councillors, some people from a school board. There were a couple regular um, older adults, a couple youth who were just sort of park users or non-users. So a broad cross-section of people, a lot of people who really haven't, you know, really don't think about parks or built environment or physical activity or any of that in their day-to-day -day basis. So in the first workshop, um, what we did was we sat them all down and we gave them three questions. It was a whole day-long process. But we asked them to think about, well, if you're going to create a park audit tool, if you want to go out and evaluate a park, whether this is a good park for physical activity, what kinds of things would you want to evaluate or put in this checklist type tool? So they gave us lots of good feedback on that. We also wanted them to think about um, if this was a tool or a park designed for youth, 
um, what are some important considerations there? And so they gave us some additional information in that respect. And then also, if we wanted to make this tool very user-friendly so that anybody could um, you know, pick it up off the street and go out and use it to evaluate their park, what are some considerations there? So I'll tell you more about what they said in just a second here. Um, so in the end, um, we developed, oh, I think I, yeah, I didn't have the results in here, but they gave us lots of good information. I don't really have time to go through all the results of what they told us. But in the end, we developed the Community Park Audit Tool, which I'll give you on our website later. Um, but it's basically a six-page tool. It covers information about what's... Um, the, about the park specifically, its name and its location, its size, things like that. Um, it also covers, section two is about access in surrounding neighborhoods. So when you're getting to the park, how easily can you cross a busy road? Um, are there, uh, is there parking, bike racks, things like that? Think, think about when you go to a park around town, you know, what makes it a good experience or what allows you to be active there? Section three, which spans this page and the next one, um, is uh, basically just about the activity areas in the park. So we ask people to rate the green spaces there that are there, the playgrounds, the trails. Are they accessible? Are they in good condition? Um, for some of the important things like trails and playgrounds, we ask a few more uh, detailed additional questions. And I can tell you more about the tool if you're interested. And in our class, we actually go out and use a lot of these tools to put them into action. And then the last page was about, the last section is about park quality and safety. So are there things there that would support your experience, like restrooms and drinking fountains and benches and um, lighting and uh, what else have we got? Picnic tables and um, uh, well, there's a couple other things I was going to say. Other people get to, oh, and then the last part, of course, is the quality and safety stuff. That's what I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, are there issues within the park that would detract from your feelings of safety or your enjoyment, like litter and graffiti and vandalism and, um, you know, dangerous spots within the park? And likewise, are there positive things as well, things like landscaping and uh, is, the, is the park well-maintained? Are there water features and artwork, stuff like that? So if you're thinking about, you know, preferably we, we haven't found an ideal park yet by any means, but hopefully most of these things would be included in parks such that they're places where people want to visit. But what we found, especially in Kansas City, is they vary, vary quite widely. And so that's kind of an environmental justice issue that we need to, to rectify. So we'll skip through quickly the rest of this. Um, but basically, we trained people very briefly, only in a few hours or so, not even that really, on how to use this tool. They went out and practiced in a local park. And then we sent them out to in pair. Well, they didn't go in pairs, but there was two people assigned to each park. And we sent them to 66 parks in total. And we, they each evaluated the park using the tool. We brought them all back, brought all their scores and ratings back. And we wanted to see, well, if I go use the tool and you go use the tool in the park, do we get kind of the same answers? This is idea of inter-rater reliability. And so generally, we found that, yes, it was very reliable. I think there was only four items. Um, three items, I think, for which the reliability was a little bit questionable, and so we maybe needed to word those or remove them from the tool because they weren't really accurate. We weren't, we weren't able to accurately measure things with those. But generally, it performed quite well, and it was interesting to see that these folks, these regular people who are non-researchers, could go out and use this thing and get pretty successful results out of it. 
Um, the final workshop is where we brought them all back together and we said, okay, how did this process go? They had a number of suggestions for us about the instrument itself, about engaging communities in this kind of a process, about who this tool um, would be useful to. And so some of the things that have come out of this, for example, there's some community groups back in Kansas City who have used the tool to um, apply for funding for grants. And so they're evaluating their local parks and making improvements as a result of it. Um, there's another group that's a childhood obesity collaborative in there who are training people now on how to use this and building capacity in the community for people to um, have uh, this resource available to them and be, be able to use it. But the other cool thing for us, though, was not just that there's this tool developed, though that was great, um, was that there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, touchy-feely kind of stuff that, uh, that happened as a result of this process. Um, so one of the things was that there was network and community, networking and community building that happened. These people hadn't really talked to each other. A lot of people who had similar interests or maybe even didn't have interests before in the built environment in parks, they came together and they really started to realize how a resource like this or a process that they had been through um, could be very useful for trying to build healthier communities. So they talked about that with some of those quotes. They also just gained personal knowledge of parks in their community, about how the built environment was important. So for example, 86% of the people who were involved in the project said that their appreciation and their awareness and their, uh, the importance of the built environment and parks for promoting physical activity and health had gone up. Um, a moderately or a lot over the course of the project. And then some people talked about how this, a tool like this and a process like this can really engage people, get them involved in community planning and be used for advocacy, right? Because if you want to, let's say, you know, make some changes, some improvements to your local park in your community, you can go out, pick up this tool, evaluate it, have some hard data to be able to present to the Parks and Rec Department, to the City Council, that kind of thing. So having something like this that regular folks can use to try to engage in uh, both research as well as advocacy and all that is, is very important, I think. All right, so that's the audit tool project. We also used um, the audit tool to go out and evaluate all of the parks in Kansas City and do some research related activities, some of which were related to environmental justice ourselves. So we titled this aspect of it the Kansas City um, Neighborhood and Park Study. So basically what happened was we wanted to know various things around how are the attributes of parks in, the, in neighborhoods related to whether people are active or a healthy weight, all that kind of stuff. So we did a big survey of, in, in total, we had 893 responses um, of households distributed all across town. Um, the survey was 15 or 16 pages, and some of the variables um, that we included were neighborhood and park perceptions, but some of the things we're specifically interested in was their physical activity and their park use and their um, BMI other demographic characteristics and so on. We also collected crime and census data for all of the census tracts in town. Um, we had GIS layers. GIS layers, if you're not familiar with them, are basically just an electronic map where we wanted to see, um, and we used all of that, as I'll show you in a second, to try to map all of the parks in town, try to map all of the 893 people and overlay them and see, you know, are people who live closer to parks, for example, more active than others? Um, I'll tell you more about all that in a second. And then, as I said, we went out and audited all of the parks. So 66 of them were audited by stakeholders as part of the last project. The rest of them were audited by um, grad students and other personnel um, to try to get a uh, detailed and uh, complete picture of all of the parks within uh, Kansas City. So one of the things, and I can tell you a lot more, we continue to publish a lot of these things, but um, Gina Baseni's uh, master's uh, project 
was looking at youth and whether they live close to parks and close to parks with specific facilities, are they more likely to meet physical activity recommendations? And in this case, yes, youth with a park within a half mile from home were uh, more than two and a half times more likely to meet physical activity recommendations than kids who didn't have that park close by. And in, in this case, it was especially true for female youth. So I think that was important because especially amongst, uh, or not especially, but also amongst kids, we see disparities by gender as well and when physical activity patterns. Um, youth with, and then more parks was better. So people who had three parks as opposed to one park had more physical activity, were more likely to meet physical activity recommendations as well. And then there were certain facilities and amenities that were important as well. So kids who had a playground um, versus kids who didn't have a playground nearby were more likely to meet physical activity recommendations. So it's not just living near the park, but also what's in the park. In addition to playgrounds, there were some other facilities that were important as well, but also some amenities, some of those things that we sometimes forget about in parks that may be important, um, like having shade, right? And having a transit stop nearby, so maybe I can get to the park more easily. Um, that traffic signal on, a st on the surrounding streets so that I can uh, access the park safely. All that kind of stuff can be very important. Another thing we wanted to look at was specifically environmental justice and are parks equally distributed and not just the park space, but also the features in parks or so playgrounds, for example, are they equally distributed across town? And all of this was by income and by race. So basically what we did was broke um, all of the census tracts down in uh, Kansas City into low, middle or high income and low, middle, or high minority percentage of minority population. So again, this was all just non-white population. And so looking across low, middle, or high, um, are there, is there more park space? Are the parks equally equal with respect to the features that are in them? And then the quality as well, as according to that, um, those ratings at the end of the park audit tool with respect to the number of good things, aesthetic features that are in the park, as well as those quality concerns like vandalism, graffiti, and so on. So we found, this was somewhat surprising, um, somewhat contrary to a lot of other studies, but in Kansas City there was more parks in lower income areas. And that's because in Kansas City still, um, and a lot of cities have kind of reversed this trend, but still in Kansas City, lower income groups are the darker um, shades of green in here in these census tracts. They're more found within the central area of the city. And so the, what's the green dots, it's hard to tell on this map entirely, but you'll find more green or at least uh, yellow dots, which signifies one park in the middle areas of the city, at least statistically, that's how it bears out. Um, and the lower income areas in the middle of the city, and that's where there are more parks. Um, I think that's partly because, uh, you know, central areas of cities were often designed with a lot more mixed land use back in the, you know, 1900, early 1900s or, or later. Um, with respect to, you know, there's, there's businesses there, there's parks there, there's schools often closer to people's houses and all that kind of stuff. So we have a lot more mixed land use, including parks in those areas. Whereas in the higher income areas, in this case, uh, there, was, there were fewer parks in the more suburban regions. So that was a little bit eye-opening to the uh, city. And so they're working on rectifying some of that. Um, but in this case, it's a good thing, I guess, lower income, more parks. 
but there were also the parks and lower income areas were significantly less, li less likely to have certain facilities that were important, um, and in particular playgrounds in this case. Um, also more likely to have a greater number of quality concerns, litter, graffiti, and so on. So again, they're using some of this information to apply for some grants now that they have this kind of data to try to rectify some of these disparities. But when we talk about environmental justice, right, it's about the first part of it, the uh, getting people involved in this process, about you know, having a tool and a resource where everybody can be involved, but also looking at the equal distribution of resources, those, those two aspects. Um, one other thing that's kind of an environmental justice issue I just wanted to throw in here because it was some interesting results. I just presented this in Australia a few weeks ago. Um, basically what it says here is we wanted to look at um, if you have difficulty accessing the park from your surrounding neighborhood, are you less likely to use a park and to be active in that park? So what we did was we looked at two different variables. I'll skip to them here. Street connectivity. So street connectivity is how well can you get along the streets in order to get to your park. Whereas if you picture a neighborhood where there's very like winding streets, some of you may live in a suburban neighborhood like that, and it's gonna take you a long time to travel that winding road and get to the park. Whereas if the park's over here and you can just go up the road, over and up the road, it's a lot more of a direct line. So we talk about street connectivity. Is that important for getting to your park? and being active there. But the other interesting thing for me was traffic speed. When you cross, or when you um, get to your park, so you start in the middle, say, with your, your person or your household, if you want to get to your closest park, do you have to cross a busy road to get there? In this case, we define a busy road as more than 35 miles per hour traffic speed. And so obviously, if you have to cross that busy road, you're probably more likely to, uh, or less likely to do it, especially if you're an older adult or um, a younger person. And so what we found was that this is for street connectivity first, um, that the people who had higher street connectivity, they, we broke them down into four groups. So the, with the highest quartile being the, the best group with more connected streets. So the fourth and the third groups, those higher groups, were more likely to use parks, to so be able to get to their parks and use them more quickly, and more likely to be active um, in their report being active in their parks. And then for traffic speed down here, um, it didn't really have a, an effect on physical activity in the park, but still getting to the park and being and using the park, um, more likely to use the park if you don't have to cross that busy road. So again, it's kind of an access issue and kind of an environmental justice issue because a lot of neighborhoods in lower income communities are sometimes built next to busy roads or um, you know a lot of freeways, a lot of more barriers built within them, whereas some of our suburban neighborhoods are sometimes more just residential area. There's a lot more connections or... Um, parks distributed throughout them, not so much in Kansas City, but we see that in other places now too. Okay, so that's my parks research. Just wanted to give you a flavor for that. I'd love, love to talk with you more about that if you're interested. But the last thing I want to move on to, only about 10 more slides here, is a project that we're doing now to try to build on this whole idea of environmental justice and getting people more involved in thinking about these issues. And in this case, the emphasis is on kids. So we have the HYPE project, the Healthy Young People Empowerment Project. 
And the rationale here is that if we're going to try to change communities and you know, get better communities built, or if we're going to you know, get more parks in communities, more sidewalks, um, better nutrition environments as well, um, it's going to require the collaboration of a large number of groups, a large number of stakeholders. So that's what we're partly trying to initiate with the Park Audit Tool project. Okay? And there's no reason why kids can't and shouldn't, shouldn't be or should be involved in this, this type of a process, right? Because research, I could go into it if you're interested, but research shows that youth voices can be especially powerful in influencing the priorities of decision makers, right? You know, if you think about, you know, I could go and advocate to city council or somebody from the Parks and Recreation Department could go to city council. But if you put some kids before them um, and, you know, and they're really kids, you know, kids are the future of the community, they're going to have strong voices and be, be able to be advocates. But we need to help them develop some of these skills to engage in that process. And it obviously has important implications for the kids as well in terms of them feeling more empowered, them feeling like they're listened to more, them developing knowledge and skills around advocacy and being involved in the community. They might go on to careers in public health or civic leadership, all of that kind of stuff, right? Because we're not going to change these communities overnight. It might take 5, 10, 20, 30 years. But if we can take kids who are adolescents right now, get them interested in public health, get them to go into careers, like in, you know, go to go to school first, like here, get them into careers, get them into civic uh, leadership, move them into city council or other public health leadership positions in future. Um, that'll be important, but we need to kind of start right now. So that's one of the things that we want to do. And some prominent authors have um, suggested that youth advocacy is kind of the next wave of change for social health. So the purpose of the HYPE project is to enhance the capacity of adolescents to plan, implement, and advocate for policy systems and environmental changes centered around healthy eating and active living. So when you say policy systems and environment, it's these high-level approaches, changing neighborhoods, changing schools, changing parks, whether it be a policy within them, such as you know, kids are going to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, or an environment within them where you know, we change the uh, vending machines, or we uh, improve the safety or the lighting, something like that, within a park. So anything that you think about at that kind of higher policy systems environment level. Um, the HYPE project is a partnership between several groups. Um, the CDC is involved through funding to various South Carolina communities through these things called the Community Transformation Grants that are happening right now. Um, that money gets funneled through a group called the Healthy South Carolina Initiative. But then there's other local or more on the ground active partners. Eat Smart, Move More South Carolina is a group that um, helps to facilitate obesity prevention across the state. Um, they're based here in South Carolina, but they work all across the state. The University of South Carolina Arnold School of Public Health is us, and we bring sort of um, the research and evaluation and academic perspective to the whole program. And then South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, DHEC, um, brings that at state uh, government perspective to it as well. Um, HYPE has gone through an extensive development, which is still ongoing. Um, we have some theory built into it. So if you think about your program planning classes, you know, we have some uh, models that uh, we are building it based on. The match model aims to think about, um, you know, if I want to develop a certain intervention, who do I need to target that towards and what, with what kind of an intervention. So we could go into all of that, but it's based on um, uh, that kind of model of uh, health promotion planning. 
It also builds on theoretical frameworks like positive youth development theory and that social ecological framework that I presented earlier. And so we've number of, done a number of things over the last year or so in terms of building a, a team that is putting this together for representatives of all of those agencies. Um, Eat Smart Move More has a person that's specifically dedicated to youth empowerment. Um, they also have a couple practicum students, people from the Arnold School that are uh, working on this project. We've gone through this literature review, as I talked about, with theories and models and so on, and looking at other curriculums that have been developed to get kids involved. So some of this has been done previously with uh, tobacco control, um, a little bit with nutrition and physical activity out in California and some other places, but we're trying to borrow the best pieces from different places. It hasn't been done very much with obesity uh, prevention, especially from policy systems and environments, uh, environmental approaches. And there's a bunch of other activities, goals and objectives, of course, getting the expert opinions from key informants, going through and developing this curriculum, which I'll get to in a second. And then we also have a minority advisory board that helps to uh, advise the development of this and the implementation of it, because our goal is to try to also reduce health disparities and especially engage minority youth in this process. So there are five phases of hype, think, learn, act, share, and evaluate. We'll go through each of these real quick. Um, so in the think phase, you know, if you think about most 12 to 17 year olds, they don't sit, about, sit around thinking about these issues on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So what we try to do over the course of four or five sessions in the think phase is simply get them to reflect on what is healthy eating? What is physical activity? What are things in my... Um, neighborhood, my community, my school that impacts my physical activity and healthy eating and perhaps to prevent me from engaging in those behaviors. We also get them to think about health disparities and stereotypes and how can we address some of those issues in the community. And, and as it says down here, all of these act things are very youth-oriented. Um, I should have brought my guidebooks, but there's a guidebook that the youth that we've developed that the youth um, follow, and it's, it's nice and pretty pictures and activities, and they go out and do activities in the community, in the classroom, with their group, and so on. I'll tell you more about the structure of it all in a second. Um, the learn phase. Um, where they actually learn skills that they're going to be able to use to go out and be community champions for change. So they learn about like what is a policy and how can I engage in policy and advocacy processes. Um, and then they, so that some of the things that they do where they learn about public speaking and public leadership and they go out and interview community members. Um, they learn about what is an action plan and how can we actually go about this in a logical procedural way to get a, a, a change made in the community. In the act phase, is my favorite, where they actually do something and they actually get out there and figure out, you know, what do we want to change? So the way, they, way it all starts is they go out and take pictures of their community and we sit down with them and we say, okay, what are the common themes here? You know, is it physical activity that you have really have issues with? Nutrition? What are the barriers in the community for each of these issues? And is it in a school environment? Is it in a, uh, a public environment like a park or a neighborhood? Um, and we help them to figure out, but they're driving the whole process. We help them to figure out, though, what kind of an environment do you want to tackle? Then we equip them with one of these audit tools, whether it be our park audit tool, a school nutrition environment audit tool, that kind of, those kinds of things, where then they go out and systematically collect information so that they can use that as the foundation of their advocacy efforts, and they can use that to develop an action plan around a policy or an environmental change. So they might, design, might decide that they want to tackle, um, you know, school nutrition environments through the cafeteria and the food that's there. Um, they might decide they want to improve uh, safety and lighting and things like that in their parks and so on. So they come up with this action plan and they start to 
engage in that um, over the course of 8 to 16 weeks or so. Um, they've developed their action plan, then it's time to share it with the relevant groups. So they hopefully do a presentation to the school board, to the Parks and Recreation Department, to the City Council, um, trying to get their action plan implemented, right? Um, the other thing we will do is we have a hype summit uh, once a year where all of the different groups who are working on a project can come together, not only share their stuff with policymakers who may be invited to the hype summit, but also with each other so they can gain motivation and enthusiasm for each other's projects um, in that larger setting. <clears throat> and the last phase is evaluate. The kids self-reflect on what did we accomplish and how can we move this forward in future? What are our next steps? We also help to, um, or we also kind of come in, so to speak, and evaluate with them what did they learn from the project. Um, we also might evaluate with the policymakers what are their changes in attitudes and knowledge towards these issues now that they've been exposed to the youth being uh, advocates for these issues. So those are the five phases. That's a pretty rough overview, but there are steps and uh, modules and all of that that happen within each one. There's about a 60-minute session per module, about uh, three to five module or modules per each of those stages. Um, ideally, people would meet once a meet week. This is, happens in structured groups, so it might be like an after-school group. It could be a, an actual school group within a school. Um, it could be a faith-based group. Could be some kids with the Boys and Girls Club. A lot of cities are now pulling together um, youth groups or youth commissions. So there's a number of different ways that this could happen. And, uh, but it's, we need to find just a, a youth group. And the enthusiasm for this is really growing. And so I can tell you more about that. But uh, the, there's a process where groups can apply and get funding and um, receive funding to help support their efforts in this way. And it's all led by an adult facilitator. So somebody is familiar to them. We train the adult facilitators in a two-day session, but they are the ones who lead the vast majority of it because they have the rapport with the, the youth. And as I said, there's two guidebooks that are pretty detailed that help them walk through all of this with various activities and PowerPoints and stuff like that. Okay, so this is happening right now. Uh, I just started this past fall in three communities in Pickens, Richland, and Fairfield counties across South Carolina. The groups are at the point right now, I don't know if our timeline is quite correct, yeah it is, where we're um, finishing up phase two and they're launching into phase three. So we're really excited about seeing what do they come up with for their action plans in the, in the new year. Working to implement that over a few months and then um, having, I think we're still going to be having a hype summit somewhere around here where groups can share what they've done so far before, the, before summer hits. Um, all of this gets evaluated in a pretty rigorous way. For the moment, we're largely focusing on um, how is the program working, sort of that process evaluation thing you might talk about in class. Um, so is the program being delivered properly? How is it being implemented? What are the barriers to all of that? Are the kids enjoying it? Are they satisfied? Are they engaged in the program? What could we do differently there? And are they building that rapport between the adult leaders and the kids? Are the kids becoming respected, a respected part of their community? We also want to see those outcomes, though, those short and long-term outcomes. We have a logic model that describes all of this where, you know, are the kids gaining knowledge and awareness? And then are they moving on towards, do they feel more empowered and they can be part of a community change kind of process? And then does change start to actually happen? Are they mobilized in the, as individuals? Is the community starting to see policy or environmental changes? Are the policymakers on board with all of this, their willingness to make changes and so on? 
So that's some of our next steps is just ongoing feedback from various groups about the program and I welcome your thoughts obviously. Um, seeing this implemented in a number of different communities through various mechanisms over the next uh, few years. The goal is 30 or more communities. As I said, an emphasis on minority, in this case largely in South, in, uh, South Carolina, African American youth, and then ramping up the evaluation of this to try to you know, provide some solid evidence that this kind of stuff works and trying to disseminate it um, to maybe perhaps uh, you know, state and nationwide eventually. All right, so in summary, built environments, including parks, are important resources in communities. They're not the only way to get people physically active or to eat healthier, but they can have a large impact on a large number of people. But we need to understand how environmental factors work in diverse communities and preferably get a broader cross-section of people in those diverse communities involved in thinking about these issues because only then will we, will we have a better chance of promoting um, environmental justice and to improve health. Just a few acknowledgments. I do a lot of this work with somebody back in Missouri and a number of other people in the room here, um, a few grad students, uh, Gina Bassini, Katie Vaughn, Stephanie Child, the, the people back in Kansas City are wonderful, a few funding bodies down here, and so on, and that's all, and that's my contact information. I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in any of this, and hopefully uh, I'll get a chance to chat with some more of you. Thank you.